0: Kyle, thanks so much for joining Speaking of, Making Healthcare Work for You, Different Perspectives and Empowering Solutions. I'm Stephanie Fields, joined by my co-host, Dr. Apoorv Gupta, and today we welcome Pramod John, who is the CEO of Vivio Health. Thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: I'm really interested in this conversation because as we were doing our prep call, you were talking about how important it is for data to drive the decisions and for consumers to to have visibility into what's really happening with the drug industry overall. And so Vivio was actually formed by a lot of people who were working at some of the biggest pharmaceutical companies. So tell us how in the world did you get together and decide well, 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 what we're doing now isn't what we want to be doing and we want to focus on this instead. So tell us about the, the formation and the vision.
1: Yeah, thank you. Great question. I think that a lot of us are from pharma and a lot of us are at the end of our careers versus the beginning of our careers. And I think that uh, part of it is that a lot of us have seen sort of the excesses, if you will, in the healthcare industry. And at some point we decided that, well, we're tired of being a part of causing the problem. I think it's time for us to switch to solving this problem, right? And so that's, that's hence why a lot of people from pharma, a lot of people from the healthcare industry, because in many ways now spending $4 trillion on healthcare I don't think we often realize that the healthcare industry is a $4 million economy in and of itself. And at some point it has absolutely no economic interest in, 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 in sort of shrinking or contracting. And what's good for the American people, which is that we can take $4 trillion and make it $2 trillion, means that we've created $2 trillion worth of losers in the healthcare industry. And I haven't met anybody so far in the healthcare industry that thinks that's a great idea.
2: Somebody's uh, gain is, is somebody else's loss. It's uh, it's so profound. So that, that makes me wonder, promote, what is it that Vivio is then trying to do in this? And how do you think that you can make some change in this huge Titanic ship that's steering uh, towards the next trillion dollars?
1: Yeah, really good question. I think one of the, I don't know if you're aware of this, but if you were to break down healthcare today, you'll find that specialty drugs, these are the drugs that you see on television, oncology drugs, rheumatology, all sorts of things. You know, this category of drugs, anything you see on TV generally today is probably a specialty drug. Those drugs are now the fastest growing segment of all of healthcare in the United States. And here's a kicker. It's the fastest growing area of spend globally it's not just a US problem anymore. And so if you were to look at that segment, you realize that it's, and by the way, all of the investments of pharma are in specialty drugs. If you were to look at a lot of the industries in the US, the the pharmacy benefit industry and other things, all of their profitability now is being driven by these things, specialty drugs. And so we realized that specialty drugs Uh, are, since it is the fastest growing segment in healthcare, that's an area where we both need to do something about. And when you look at the underlying data, you see there's a lot of opportunity to change the way that that works. And there's a lot of inefficiency when you look at the question of, are we getting what we're paying for? Or more importantly, am I getting Right? even at the level of the individual, because we often assume that this drug must be working. And it turns out that when you look at drug trials and other things for many of these, these drugs, that they only work in small segments of the population, even in the drug trials. And all of us probably care more about whether our car is running when we're paying or buying a car than we care about whether our neighbor's car is running. Right?
0: I noticed the other day I was watching one of the specialty drugs um, for migraines, and it had a bunch of Olympians in it. And then I noticed in the fine print it actually said I it, it it could I could have the wrong Olympian here, forgive me, but I it said Ryan Murphy does not take whatever the drug was, and I thought, holy cow, this like why are we glamorizing these? And you know, going back to your point that it's just it. Some of them aren't effective at all. And you were telling us in the pre-interview, you know, about the so many doctors are prescribing drugs, but yet they've probably not read the clinical trials and the clinical research in such a long period of time. And, you know, using the celebrity example really is just another one of those ways that money is going to things like paying a celebrity who's not even using this drug to people who are prescribing it, who haven't read the data
1: Well, Stephanie, you bring up a really good point. Yes, I did notice that and I was shocked because I thought even for pharma, that was a stretch with the Olympics, right? To use advertising in that way, right? So imagine that now they're a spokesperson or expert and we're so used to having experts tell us what to do. So in this case, the expert is the celebrity, right? The influencer, right? Who is now influencing us? Because they apparently swim well, they must be a great influencer for what the right, you know, migraine medication one should take is, right? And in this case, they're honest enough to say, "Hey, we don't even use this stuff ourselves," right? And what was even more interesting was that in the ad, I think it was it was Ryan Murphy or whomever I saw in the ad, they said that they suffered from migraines. So this is even worse. This is saying that I am a migraine sufferer myself, but I don't use this drug. So talk about that as, an, as a ringing endorsement, if you will, for this, for this therapy. And then you take that a step further and it's like, well, doctors are the experts, right? Going back to that. And in some ways, often they're not that different from the Ryan Murphy example because we make an assumption that the doctors have read the trial data themselves. They understand the side effects. They understand what all the different drugs are and they understand the data behind it. But we often find that they've actually never read the trial data themselves either. And they're making decisions sometimes or often in the same way that we watching those commercials do. Because somebody from pharma walks in and says, our drug is great. And by the way, it's better than the competitors, but they've never actually read the trial data themselves.
2: Is it ultimately promote, as, as I'm reflecting on this as you as you probably know, I'm a physician as well, and now I work as a consultant to the industry. and I, and I'm wondering, is, is is it ultimately that the information is just too complicated to keep up with? Because I don't know that the doctors, in some cases, you could say they're, they're just acting as agents of pharmaceutical industry. For, for the most part, the doctors you'll meet are trying to do the right thing. And yet, I think that they're struggling themselves with trying to figure out how to keep up. And you had, you had mentioned earlier how to create a great career track for themselves and, and get ahead and just stay ahead of, of what, they're, what they need to get done. So how much of this do you think it just ultimately comes down to being overwhelmed and not having enough capacity to rally, actually be able to keep up, and therefore having to rely on some shorthand tactics to, to to get the information that they need.
1: I think you're spot on, right? If you were to go back and ask the question of, is it because doctors want to do the wrong thing? It's like, no. I mean, all the folks who I know are physicians absolutely went into it and want to do the right thing. The majority of doctors we that I meet personally, I mean, there may be some their influence because someone is writing them large checks or other things, but that's not the majority of doctors, right? The majority of them are probably overworked, right? They, they don't have enough hours in the day to fill in all the data on new EMRs and the list just goes on and on, right? When you think about most physicians. And then and this problem, so if you step back and ask, well, why do we have this problem? Well, take a step backwards and go back to your own experience when you were in medical school, right? and look at your training and ask yourself the question of, what does the training I actually did have to do with what I do on a daily basis, right? And so if you think about it, let me give you an example. A drug trial is a mathematical statistical problem, right? And we've spent time with, you know, some of the clinical excellence research lab at Stanford and other places talking to some of the brightest students that have come out and fellows who have come out of medical school and other things, it's like, Did you ever take a course on the mathematics behind drug trials? And did you ever take a course on interpreting data behind trials? Did you ever take a course on how to apply those things and the data behind it? And you're like, no, they don't. There are no courses. They don't take courses in that space. And then you're asking, "But, but, but why should it matter? Well, medical interventions or medications are the most frequent intervention that a physician will make in their lives on average of any other intervention. And if you go back and ask the question of, but why is it that if that's the most frequent thing that the medical education process doesn't stress the thing that you're going to be doing the most as a physician, that would be a good place to start and ask, why isn't it that what doctors have to do on a daily basis and the whole education system behind it, for example, those two things are completely disconnected. So you're you're set up for failure even before you start as a physician. Because when you think about, well, how did you really learn how to practice medicine? Residency, because it was sort of like an apprenticeship. So what are you most likely to do? Well, whatever your mentors and other people did is probably the way that you're gonna practice medicine. And those things have very little to do with the data. So in many ways, I mean, we've set up physicians in some ways to fail also when the medical education system doesn't reinforce the most common thing they do to help them do that one thing really well.
0: So Porv, I have a question for you as a physician. So like Pramod said, you know, it's not that he doesn't think that doctors don't want to read clinical trials. And in fact, knowing you, I wouldn't be surprised if you did read the clinical trials, but when you were practicing and, you know, if residency is like the apprenticeship, what were the things that you prescribed and what were you going on? Did you then form your own data? Was it talking to your peers to see what was working? And if so, then do you feel like that was an additional responsibility that, doctors have that they may not need to be shouldering if organizations like the FDA could better do their job and actually have some kind of real criteria that's transparent and data-driven. Because it just seems like that would be really hard because where do it? Like you don't have time to read clinical trials for everything, but you also do see that there's value in drugs. So where, where are you getting your, your basis for which you're picking?
2: Hmm. I'm so glad, Stephanie, you asked uh, the question, and Pramod, I hope it's okay, because we're uh, really stealing your limelight a little <laughs> bit. But uh, as you were talking, promote it, it really resonated deeply with me. And in fact, you may be the only person, and I'm now going to say this on the air, that has probably ever really figured uh, tapped the, the key reason why I'm no longer practicing. So, There came a point, because I was always so interested in the the administrative side of medicine and trying to understand how the system worked, that I was trying to do both clinical and administrative at the same time. And I quickly came to find out that it was really difficult to do, mostly because I didn't feel like I could keep up with all the new drugs that were coming out. Honestly, that was about 10 years ago is when I probably last saw a patient. And it was because the number of drugs that were just getting, and I was a general medicine practitioner in an inpatient setting. uh, I just couldn't keep track of all the new diabetes drugs, the HIV drugs, the hypertensive drugs. And this is just common general internal medicine. Forget about all the additional subspecialties that you really have to know to be a a deaf practitioner. And And Ryan Murphy
0: wasn't there to tell you what worked.
2: That's right. That's right. I did have pharmaceutical companies and agents that were coming and were summarizing the data. But really, I think Pramod crystallized it in that that ultimately the, the plethora of information is just what you're asking doctors to keep up with. Personally, felt like it was too much for me to handle, and I thought I can't be a great administrator and a great clinician at the same time. I have to choose. Uh, it's hard enough to keep up, so so that's one answer to the question, uh, Pramod. I'll take a, one of them and one more minute, if you if it's okay with you, because I think another answer to the question is. Uh, to the question that Stephanie posed is, during residency, we actually did a decent job at this because we were academic and this is what we were learning. And at the academic places, I trained at Beth Israel Deaconess in Boston, a really premier uh, academic institution. And we took a lot of pride in understanding the clinical trials and staying on top of them and trying to understand why we were doing something. But it faded very quickly. As soon as you get into quote unquote practice, there was no apparatus infrastructure or time to actually keep up. And then, as I mentioned, probably a few 15 years or so, 10 to 15 years after my training, I quickly felt that I just really wasn't able to keep up. So, so maybe I'll turn that as back as a question to you, Pramod, as you're listening, you're smiling. How does, how does my own self-disclosure resonate with you? And, and how does that reflect on what you think is going on with the, our other physician colleagues? I think you're, I mean, you're spot on. I think part of it is that there are things
1: that people do really well and there are things that computers do really well, right? And when you start thinking about things like keeping up with data, right, this is almost a cultural divide too when you think about medicine. I will, I'm not going to tell you who it was, but one of the heads of one of the large American college of, you know, fill in the blanks. asked you know we, we they were offended by some of the things that we're doing right because they were all driven by data and uh, in some ways really focusing that this is all about data it's not about people and opinions right and so she asked me a question which was are you saying that you're going to be replacing all of us with computers right and immediately the divide between data and where people went to was that this is about replacing everyone. And our argument is that this is why we're facing the problem that we're facing today. Because rather than using computers for the things that they're good at and people for the things that they're good at, we've said that, no, we wanna manage these things because we're afraid of letting go, right? As a result, we do things poorly and you end up where you are because as you point out, how do we keep up with all this stuff? Right? because it's very hard to keep up with all the data. Well, that's something that computers are really good at doing, right? And so at some point, if we're gonna fix this, it's gonna be recognizing that line in the sand of, of, of thinking differently about this to say, this is not a, our computer's going to replace me. This is a, hey, where do we use computational methods for doing some of these things where it's really good at that? And where do we use humans for doing the part that humans do extremely well and often those two things are not the same things that computers do well and humans do well right for example in the practice of medicine
0: so tell us how can how can you shift that dynamic and that threat that some physicians or some leaders in medicine might be feeling and let them know that what vivio health is doing is actually trying to partner with them and make things easier for them so that they're making better informed decisions based on data that's really helping everyone and not feel it as a threat?
1: You know, I think that's a tough one, right? Because ultimately this affects livelihoods of people and where it affects livelihoods of people, they generally are resistant to change, right? And so it's a very difficult problem, right? Because in some ways we're saying, hey, we have shortages of physicians in the U.S. And you're like, why? Let me ask you a question. We were talking about, I think you brought up diabetes drugs or something earlier when we were talking about. 20 or 30 years ago, if you had diabetes, you'd see an endocrinologist. Who sees an endocrinologist for diabetes today? Unless you had a highly resistant, you know, diabetes that you couldn't treat with a general practitioner of some form, that would be the only person who'd probably see an endocrinologist. Everything else can be handled now, right? By a family practice, whatever, internal medicine, you know, the first line of of primary care can handle all those things that many, you know, just a few years ago, we're seeing the same sort of thing, right? We're seeing nurse practitioners, we're seeing physician assistants, right? We're seeing other parties now that are able to do large sets of what a lot of other physicians, you know, and specialists used to do. And you're like, if you think about that for a second, just for a second and break that down, it's not about the people, it's about the commoditization of information, right? Which is saying that a less skilled person now can deal with larger and larger sets of the ordinary things. And so in many ways, this helps us in a couple of ways. One is it allows us to get better care, right? By saying that now more people can get better care because we just can't have enough specialists, right? And it also says that specialists should only be working on things that are truly special, right? Versus the things that are maybe profitable but not truly special anymore, right? And so part of this is that shift in thinking, right? Of how do we get specialists, you know rather than thinking of this as a, we're taking away your job, think of this as a you should be able to spend more time with the people who need your help versus a lot of time that you spend now because you have to keep the machine churning, right? On, then you have to push patients through that really don't need your help, right? So this is really that switch in thinking of how do we get that change to occur right over time?
0: It's interesting, uh, allowing people to practice at the higher levels that they're probably more interested in. So uh, diffusing that threat might allow them to actually live their passion more. I
2: think that's, that's really true. And uh, one more thing that I'm reflecting on is something Pramod uh, was talking about with us earlier during our, our prep call. And that is uh, it, interesting. He was reflecting on why is your show called Making Healthcare Work For You? And uh, obviously the obvious question answer to that is that uh, it's because healthcare isn't working. So, so Pramod, with your with your last response, it, what, what it made me think is, do you have some any good examples of where you're seeing that symbiotic relationship between doctor and computer working to the benefit of the community or for the patient? Uh, Are you at that point yet with Vivio Health or or in general uh, with the observations you've made about healthcare in the country that you've started to see some examples of where this relationship can actually be in the way that you're defining it?
1: You know, I think it's very early at this point, right? When you think about sort of the use of computers, I mean, some of the efforts If you want to think about things that didn't work out that we tried were like Watson, for example, IBM Watson, some of the efforts there, right? And so at this point, I think that uh, the efforts are very early, right? But ultimately, if you think about the domain of the problem, right? The domain of a problem, for example, if we weren't talking about healthcare and we were talking about financial information, right? Stock markets and all those things, we'd be talking about algorithmic trading. We'd be talking about all sorts of things today. None of us would be feeling uncomfortable with the fact that there are things that we could do today that we couldn't do in other arenas. There are things that we can see today that we couldn't see before, right? But that started with the, we're okay with the physical stockbroker trader going away, right? But, you know, if you were to go back and ask, do we still have stockbrokers and traders? Yeah, they still exist. They just do different things. And so I think in the same way in medicine, right? I think there's definitely an opportunity for us to be using technology more, right? And better. And and frankly, some of it is also driven by the fact that today we've got a lot of bad exam. You think about most EMRs. I mean, most physicians hate their EMR. And you're like, well, why? Well, because it wasn't designed around ease of providing clinical care, right? It was provided around how do I maximize reimbursements, right? So the whole engine was built, if you think about most EMRs, popular ones like Epic grew because they had the best revenue capture engine, not because they helped doctors provide the best care. So unless we're also going to figure out how do we align the tools like technology to help them do their job better versus making money for someone else, right? Well, we're not gonna fix these things, right? And so part of how technology helps shape and improve things is that technology is aligned around solving the problem for the person who's using it. And today, these things are not aligned around helping a doctor do their job better.
0: It's so fascinating. I love hearing all about this. With that, I'd like to hear, with my final question, How did you get, I know your training is in engineering. You had a tech background, a high-tech background and moved into this, but you're something that you're super passionate about and that is evident in everything that you're saying. So tell us why does this matter so much to you and what is your hope that, you know, five, 10 years down the road, Vivio Health is going to be doing and how it's going to transform the industry?
1: Yeah. Thank you for asking that question. I mean, for me personally, I I came out of high-tech my first few ventures were in the computer security space. And the reason I switched gears was that I felt that, for example, in Silicon Valley, you know, we, I I live in Silicon Valley and my first few ventures were based out of Silicon Valley. You know, there's a lot of focus on cool new things. And when I think back to a lot of cool new things that drove our economy, those came out of Bell Labs. Those came out of a lot of places where people were working on problems that had large scale impact on the economy. And, you know, In Silicon Valley, often I personally see a disconnect between a lot of the things that people are working on and the large scale systems that affect our economy. And the large problems, honestly, that we have as Americans today, if you were to think about sort of our large scale problems, they are government, education, and healthcare. They tend to be the least efficient of the industries and the large scale systems that that, that affect every American. And so for me, the issue personally was that, hey, we should be focusing on solving the large problems that affect our economy. And to me, healthcare was the biggest of all the problems that we face spending $4 trillion on healthcare. And I've got three kids, if you wanna ask about what my real motivation is. And I've lived a phenomenally great life of, uh, you know, being able to get higher education, being able to send my kids to school, all of these things that I've been afforded living in this country as an immigrant living in this country. And so when I think about, well, is the best that we can do for my three kids and your kids and everyone else's kids, leaving them straddled in healthcare debt, that is completely unnecessary? And to me, the answer to that is no, I think we can do better than that. And I think we have an obligation to do better than that. And so that's what drives us as Vivio because we're concerned about making a change and changing the way the healthcare system works, right? And and that is largely driven by, we feel an obligation to do the right thing for the good of every American, not just the 5% of Americans who work in the healthcare system
0: hard to find a more noble mission than that. I mean, geez, you should pick such a small thing to tackle there, promote.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Very inspiring and courageous. It's really tremendous.
0: Thank you so much for this conversation. I loved it. Thank you all for watching. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.